You can go ahead and be seated. Let's open our time in a word of prayer this morning, and thank you so much to Dan and the worship team for leading us in those songs of praise. But let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word this morning, we ask that you would receive all of the praise and glory, that our hearts would submit to your teaching, and that your spirit would rule in us so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a great delight and joy for me to be here this morning. I'm so grateful to be here at Calvary Baptist and thankful to Pastor Michael and also to Dave for the opportunity. I was here about a year ago and just had such a blessed time here at this church with all of you, and it's a joy for my wife and I to be back, and so thank you for allowing us the opportunity and for your hospitality. It's just wonderful to be with like-minded believers here in Santa Barbara this morning. And it's a joy for me to jump back into the series that you are doing through the book of Titus. I know you took a short break to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, but we're going to be back in Titus this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them and turn to Titus chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I would like to tell you about two missionaries, two missionaries who took the gospel to an island full of unreached people. Their names were David Jones and David Griffiths. And they were sent out by the London Missionary Society to the fourth largest island in the world, the island of Madagascar. Jones and Griffiths arrived in Madagascar roughly 200 years ago in the early 1820s. And thanks to support from the king of Madagascar, they were able to establish a series of schools where they had teachers who were teaching the people there. They actually took the opportunity to create an alphabet so that the language of Madagascar, Malagasy, could be put into written form. They translated the New Testament into Malagasy along with hymn books. And thanks to the London Missionary Society that sent them, they were able to set up a printing press and have a fairly significant ministry. But even though from the outset the mission work progressed very well, the king of Madagascar was not really sure that he wanted any of his people to actually convert to Christianity. The king died in the year 1828, and rule went to his wife, the queen, and she was very opposed to any of her subjects becoming Christians. And so, starting in 1835, Christians in Madagascar were severely persecuted. Christianity itself was made illegal, and the missionaries were forced to flee. 
Those who had converted to Christ, many of them lost their property, some were fined, some were arrested and put in jail, and there were even some who were executed. And one of those missionaries, David Griffiths, actually wrote about this in a book that he published on the persecution of the Christians of Madagascar. And that persecution lasted all the way until the year 1861 when the queen died, and upon her death there was religious freedom that was restored, at least to some extent, on the island of Madagascar. And in God's good providence, about eight years later in 1869, another queen came to power on that island. She actually took the same name as that earlier queen. She was the second, a name that you will have to look up because I wouldn't be able to pronounce it properly. But she had been educated in one of those schools that the missionaries had set up, and so she was a Christian. And the result of this was that hundreds of thousands of the people of Madagascar converted to Christianity in the late half of the 19th century, and even today, a significant percentage of the population of that island would profess to be Christians. There was an article in the Sunday School Times in around the 1870s. It was cited by Joseph Excel in his pulpit commentary in 1887. But that article reported this about the converts in Madagascar, and, and this is really significant. It said this, quote, when native converts of the island of Madagascar used to present themselves for baptism, it was often asked of them, what first led you to think of becoming Christians? The answer usually was, that the changed conduct of others who had become Christians was what first arrested their attention. I knew this man to be a thief. This one was a drunkard. Another was very cruel and unkind to his family, but now they are all changed. The thief is an honest man. The drunkard is sobered, sober and respectable, and the other is gentle and kind in his home. There must be something in a religion that can work such changes, unquote. I think that's an amazing testimony from the annals of church history about the power of a Christian life to be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned, that testimony there in the second half of the 19th century resulted in many converting, giving their lives to the Lord Jesus, embracing Him in saving faith. And again, today, a large population of, or a large percentage of the population of Madagascar still profess to be Christians. In fact, my family and I have some dear friends who came to the seminary from Madagascar, trained, and have gone back there and are now ministering in Madagascar, training pastors and strengthening churches there. The rich Christian heritage of Madagascar goes back to those two missionaries. That's where it started, David Jones and David Griffiths 
who came to an island that did not know Christ, and in the face of hostility and antagonism, they preached the gospel. That gospel transformed lives, and the result was that an entire culture was changed. Former thieves became honest, former drunkards became dignified, former abusers were kind to their families, all of it a testament to the transforming power of God's truth. Well, our text this morning in Titus chapter 2 tells a similar story. In fact, the book of Titus is about a couple of missionaries, Paul and Titus, who went to an island, Crete, and it was an island where the name of Christ was unknown, the gospel of Christ needed to be preached. They came to this island populated by rebellious and unjust people, and they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The island of Crete, sorry, I just had a slight glitch with my notes here. The island of Crete is not as large as the island of Madagascar. It's the 88th largest island in the world. Madagascar is the fourth largest island. But the spiritual need was equally great. And after ministering there for a length of time, Paul left Titus in Crete. We know that from chapter 1, verse 5. And he left him in Crete for the purpose of establishing leadership in the churches that had been planted. And of course, you know because you've been part of this series that the leaders who were installed in those churches were to be men who were above reproach and who exhibited the kind of character that was consistent with the gospel. And when they lived out the transforming truth of what they had experienced because of what Christ had done in them, they became a powerful witness for Christ. The first missionaries to Madagascar faced significant opposition from the natives of Madagascar. The first missionaries to the island of Crete faced significant opposition from the natives of Crete. And as we focus in on our passage this morning in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 2, I think it's important to set the context by noting first the culture of Crete. We see this explained for us in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1. After explaining the qualifications of what was expected of spiritual leaders in the church, Paul moves from that to provide a significant contrast when he describes the culture of the people who lived in Crete. If you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's a pretty vivid description of a corrupt culture, and it was the culture that characterized Crete, and it explains the opposition and the hostility and antagonism that both Paul and Titus faced in their efforts to advance the gospel there. Cretan culture was clearly hostile to the message of Christ and to a biblical worldview, and yet Paul understands the power of the gospel. At the beginning of chapter 1, he begins by talking about how he's an ambassador for the gospel. Verse 4, he's going to preach the gospel. Really, throughout this entire book, he's giving instructions to Titus about how to continue to build the church for the advancement of the gospel in the face of a hostile culture. What a contrast, the purity and spiritual maturity of the elders in verses 6 through 9 was to the corrupt culture that characterized Crete that we see detailed for us in verses 10 to 16. But The implications of our text in chapter 2, verses 2 through 8, it's not just implied, it's directly stated, is that it's not simply the job of spiritual leaders, it's not only the job of the elders in a given church to live out the implications of the gospel, to be the salt and light that Christ calls us to be in Matthew chapter 5. It is the responsibility of every follower of Jesus Christ to live in a way that shines like a light against the darkness of a corrupt culture. On the island of Madagascar, some 17 centuries later, it was the transformed conduct of the Christians of Madagascar that made the gospel attractive and appealing. That was a testimony to the credibility, the truthfulness that the message of Christ transforms from the inside out. And that same thing was true in Crete in the first century, and that's why Paul emphasizes the importance of Christian conduct here at the beginning of verse 2. Now, before we get into these specific verses, verses 2 through 8 in chapter 2, I think it's important not only to have identified the culture, the context in which this was being written, but also the catalyst that explains why this kind of behavior was even possible. And Paul will explain that in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. And I know that's a sermon that's going to be preached by someone else, not me, but I think it's important for us to understand that the conduct to which Paul calls Titus and the Christians on Crete, and by extension us, 
It's conduct that is in contrast to the culture of Crete, but it's also conduct that is made possible by the catalyst of the gospel. So, if you look at verse 11 just quickly, for this grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, it's a reference to the gospel, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." So, what is the catalyst that motivates this conduct, conduct that we are going to examine in more detail here in just a moment? The catalyst is the transforming truth of the gospel. It is because the grace of God has appeared in the gospel. It is because the Lord Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, taking the punishment for all who believe in Him so that through Him we might have forgiveness and through Him we might be justified, and through Him we might receive His Spirit who regenerates us and creates in us a new heart so that we are new creatures in Christ. It's because the gospel has changed us on the inside that we now can live on the outside in a way that is different and distinct against the backdrop of a corrupt culture. So, all of that then sets for us the context in terms of both the historical background and the logical flow in Paul's thought as we come to these verses in chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. So, the culture was corrupt. The catalyst for change is the gospel. And right in between talking about the corrupt culture and talking about that catalyst for change, we have this section in verses 2 through 8 where Paul calls these Christians on Crete to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and thereby to be a contrast to the culture, to be countercultural, and to be a witness for Christ by living in a way that was so distinct and so different from those around them. Against the backdrop of Cretan culture and in light of the transforming catalyst of the gospel, we can now examine our text this morning, a text in which we see again the contrast of Christian conduct. Now, our outline for this passage is actually very simple. Paul addresses four different groups in the Cretan church, four different groups, and we're just going to go group by group, and we're going to see what Paul has to say to each of these four groups. He begins with the older men, and then moves from the older men to the older women, and then to the younger women and the younger men. So, let's read this text, and then we'll work our way through it. Titus chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 1, but there's the contrast. Having just talked about 
having spent seven verses, 10 to 16, talking about the corruption of Cretan culture, we now have the contrast, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And I think it's so interesting that as he talks about teaching what accords with sound doctrine, you almost would expect kind of a theological treatise to be what follows, right? When we think about doctrine, we think about theology books, systematic theology, we think about categories of theology, we think about classes, we think about things like seminary training. But notice what Paul does. Teach the things that are in accordance with sound doctrine this is what it looks like to live like a Christian. And that's because in Paul's mind, as in the rest of Scripture, there is no disconnect between good theology and Christian practice. To live like a Christian is to put your theology into practice. The truth is, the way that you live tells the truth about what you really believe. We have a saying, right, actions speak louder than words, and if your theology is right and you truly believe it, it will impact the way that you live. So then starting in verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So, we meet these four groups, older men, verse 2, older women, verse 3, younger women, verses 4 and 5, younger men, verses 6 through 8. And in fact, Paul will go on in verses 9 and 10 to address household servants, all of this in each of these categories, he is articulating the countercultural conduct that ought to characterize Christians so that they stand out as a contrast against the corrupt culture of Crete and in light of the transforming power of the gospel. Some of you may be familiar with the name Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a fairly well-known apologist, a Christian apologist in the second half of the 20th century. And in the 1970s, he wrote a book and actually created a series of films, all of which were titled, How Shall We Then Live? How Should We Then Live? And the, the entire intention of that project that he did was to look at contemporary culture and ask the question, in light of the decline of Western civilization, how should Christians behave? How should we conduct ourselves? I think that's a great question for us to ask in light of this text because this text really answers that question. 
How should we live? Because when we think about the corruption of Cretan culture, everything that Paul describes in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1, it's not all that different from California culture. We find ourselves living against the backdrop of a corrupt culture, a culture characterized by deception and greed and sensuality and immorality, rebellion against God. So, if the Cretan Christians were to be known by conduct that was countercultural so that they magnified the glory of the gospel, then the instruction that Paul gives them is immediately practical for us as well because we also, as Californian Christians, are called to live in a way that is countercultural so that we put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. How should we then live? Well, this passage will answer that question for each of these four groups. Let's begin with group number one, the older men. Titus 2, verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness term older men there, generally in the New Testament, refers to men who are in their 60s or older. And the Apostle Paul referred to himself with this same term in Philemon, chapter 1, verse 9. When he was near the end of his ministry, he referred to himself as an older man. But what a contrast these older men were to be with, in terms of how they conducted themselves, with the corrupt culture of the island of Crete. Those outside the church were led astray by myths and deception, but these older men were to be sober-minded. They were to think in terms of what is true, and they were to be dignified. Cretan culture was defined by deception and debauchery. These older men are to be honorable and to demonstrate and model integrity. The Cretans described themselves as liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, but these older men are to be marked by self-control. They're not controlled by the lusts of their flesh. They're controlled by the Spirit of God. As those advanced in years, they're to exhibit spiritual maturity and that spiritual maturity shows itself in the way that they demonstrate the faith, in the way that they demonstrate love for others, and in the way that they demonstrate endurance and steadfastness, even in the face of hostility and even in the midst of trial. As they did that, these older men not only served the church well, they also presented a compelling testimony of the transforming truth of the gospel to the watching culture outside the church. In American culture, I think older men are sometimes stereotyped in various ways from maybe being grumpy and bitter on one end of the spectrum to being out of touch or even silly sometimes on the other end of the spectrum. But 
Nothing could be further from Paul's instruction here that the church is no place for grumpy old men, and the church is no place for older men who are detached or disinterested or more concerned about their golf game or their retirement years than they are about being involved in the life of what God's doing in His body. And so, Titus 2.2 is is a compelling encouragement for any of you here today who find yourself in that category of life. What an opportunity and privilege you have to be a model of what mature Christian living looks like, a model that magnifies the gospel, and a model that provides mentoring for the younger men who are looking to follow your example. There's a second group in this text, the older women, Titus 2 verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Well, this second category mirrors the first. Again, in first century culture, this likely would have referred to women who were in their 60s, certainly women who were at a place where their children were now adults. Going back to verse 1, these ladies in the Cretan congregation were also to live out sound doctrine because just like the older men, the reality of the gospel had implications for their lives. And again, what a contrast to the corrupt culture of Crete. Cretan culture was characterized by irreverent attitudes, slanderous speech, debauched behavior. But the Christian women in these verses, or in this verse, are instructed to exhibit behavior that is reverent, honoring to God and consistent with the truth of the gospel. Their words are to be free from slander. They're not busybodies nosing their way into others' business. They're not malicious gossips, and their lifestyle is to be free from the intoxication of, in this case, alcohol or any other addiction. They're not enslaved to wine or to anything else. They're servants of Christ. And out of the platform of credibility that comes from that conduct, then they are given the opportunity to teach that which is good. And to whom are they to teach it? Well, the next verse tells us they're to teach it to the younger women in the congregation. And so, much like the older men who have the opportunity to model what it looks like to be mature in Christ and to mentor the younger men, The older women have the opportunity to model what it is to be mature in Christ and then to mentor the younger women. 
And again, we, we tend to think about this passage as a passage that's about discipleship, relationships within the church, and that certainly is an implication of the passage. But Paul's primary point here is that as that happens organically within the church, as the older men live out what it means to be a follower of Christ, and as the older women live out what it means to be faithful to their Lord and Savior, as their conduct magnifies the transforming truth of the gospel, it does two things. It provides a model for the younger generation to follow, and it becomes a powerful witness as a light against the backdrop of a dark and corrupt culture. So, if that's you this morning, if you're in the category of energetic, vivacious, and youthful older women, consider the opportunity that you have, the privilege that you have of investing in the church in a way that magnifies the gospel to a watching world and models Christ's likeness for the younger women who are looking to your example. Well, the Apostle Paul then moves to a third category, older men, older women, now in verses 4 and 5, younger women. Here's what Paul writes, the older women are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled." So, what is it that the older women are to teach the younger women? Well, Paul tells us in these verses, his focus, as is clear from the text, is on those who are married and even on those who have children. However, the general principles of love and purity and kindness and self-control, those things apply to any younger woman. For those who are married, Paul says that they are to love their husbands, and for those who are moms, they are to love their children. And it's interesting that Paul uses the word here for love that is phileo, so, agape love is the commitment, covenant kind of love. Phileo love is the love of affection. And so, Paul tells the older women, hey, remind the younger women that they're actually to have affection for their husbands and for their kids. They are also to exhibit self-control and purity as they fulfill their God-given calling calling again that Paul's focusing on here is as a wife and a mom, but those principles apply to any young woman. The phrase workers at home reflects Paul's teaching that the primary priority for a wife and mom is to care for her home and her family. And I know that Pastor Michael just took you through a series on roles in the church. But in doing this, the young woman is to exhibit kindness, which is not always easy, but she is to be known for her gentleness and patience towards her husband, towards her family, and towards those both inside the church and outside of it. 
And then she is to display an attitude of submission to the Lord and submission to her husband. Even back in the Roman Empire, feminist movements encouraged women to be insubordinate, to rebel against their husband's authority, and that was no doubt the case on the island of Crete, given Paul's description of Cretan culture at the end of chapter 1. But the younger women in the church, they're not to be characterized by that kind of self-importance. They have an opportunity to conduct themselves in a way that is so countercultural that the world cannot help but take notice. And isn't that amazing that for the younger women in the Cretan church, and again, by extension, all Christians throughout church history, including us today, that when younger women, when wives and moms, when they show affection for their husbands and their kids, when they respond to dirty dishes and piles of laundry and messy bedrooms with patience and kindness and gentleness and grace, they're not just modeling the transforming truth of the gospel for fellow believers, they're actually being a witness to the culture around them because that kind of response is countercultural. In fact, that kind of response is supernatural. It can only happen if you have the Holy Spirit working inside of you. On the flip side, if these younger women did not act this way, if they demonstrated hate and anger toward their husbands and their children, if they were not self-controlled or pure, if they were not interested in prioritizing care for their households, if they were unkind or insubordinate and irreverent in their actions, they would undermine the message of the gospel. In fact, that's what Paul says right there at the end of verse 5. The reason you conduct yourself this way is so that the Word of God will not be reviled. In other words, the message of the gospel will not be spoken against by those who are observing your behavior and going, well, they profess Christ, but they live like this. What a horrible testimony that would be. And that's Paul's point. And so, for those of you in that category today, married or unmarried, you have an opportunity as a follower of Jesus Christ, to live out the transforming truth of the gospel. And when you do, it reverberates a testimony to the wonder of Jesus Christ in the face of a hostile and corrupt culture. Now, some of you may be saying, well, practically, I don't know how to do that. And that's why Paul says, well, the older women are supposed to help you. So, find an older woman who you know and love and respect and ask her to help you as you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So, we have the older men in verse 2, the older women in verse 3, the younger women in verses 4 and 5. We come finally to a fourth group, and that's the younger men in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, likewise, 
Urge the younger men to be self-controlled and show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So, like the younger women in the Cretan church, the Cretan congregation, Paul now instructs Titus to address also the younger men. They are to, first and foremost, be self-controlled. I think it's interesting that Paul highlights self-control numerous times throughout these lists, but if there was a, a character trait that a young man needs to learn an evidence of Christ's work in his life, it is self-control. He is not controlled by the lusts of the flesh. He is controlled instead by the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, Paul shifts to focus on Titus more personally, but I believe Paul is doing so because Titus was a younger man, and so Titus is representative of this entire category. Titus, exhort the, young man, exhort the younger men in the church to do this, and oh yes, you are a younger man, so you need to also do this, and in doing this, then you will model for the younger men what Christ calls young men to exhibit. So the things Titus is called to exemplify in these verses is what any Christian younger man, and we're being pretty generous with that. I'm in my mid-40s. I'm going to include myself in this category today, the category of the younger men. The younger men, Titus included, were to be models of good works. They were to conduct themselves righteously and in a manner consistent with the gospel. We read that from Colossians 1 this morning. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Titus was to be characterized by integrity in his teaching. Other translations translate that as purity of doctrine. So, yes, you have to have pure doctrine. Not only that, but he was to live out that sound doctrine, right? Verse 1 applies to all four of these groups. What does it mean to walk in sound doctrine? Well, for younger men, it looks like not only having right doctrine, but living it out, being self-controlled, being dignified, And one of the ways you see that is in your speech, having speech that is above reproach, sound in speech. And when a younger man lives this way, being dominated by the Holy Spirit and not by his own lusts and desires, walking in sound doctrine walking in a way that is honorable and dignified, and speaking in a way that is above reproach, wholesome words. What is the effect of this? Well, the effect of this is that the opponent is not going to have anything to say. The opponent of the gospel won't have any dirt on you that he could use to undermine or to discount the message that you're preaching. What a contrast, again, this would have been to the Cretan culture around Titus and the other younger men who are part of that church. 
When they exhibited this kind of behavior, anyone who might oppose the gospel work that was taking place would be put to shame because they would have nothing bad to say about the way that the Christians were conducting themselves. So, why are we to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Why is our conduct to be characterized by these things? Well, the end of verse 5, so that the Word of God will not be defiled. And then the end of verse 8, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about you. The Word of God will not be reviled. The opponent will have nothing to say. And so, again, for those of you who are in that category this morning, the category of the younger men, how should we then live? We're not on Crete, but we're in California, and the culture's equally corrupt. And in contrast to that corrupt culture, and in light of the fact that we've been transformed by the gospel, how should we conduct ourselves? Well, when our actions are characterized by self-control, and our reputation is characterized by dignity, and our speech is characterized by wholesome words that are above reproach, that's very different than the younger men who don't know Christ. And when we then go to present the gospel, we have a platform of credibility built on a life that's consistent with what we profess to believe. And much like the younger women, if we need help, if we need help as younger men knowing how to do this, go find an older man who can help you, who exhibits that kind of spiritual maturity and emulate his example. So, this was the conduct to which Paul called the Christians on Crete. It was conduct that was truly counter-cultural. One thing that I do think is interesting about, again, this list is that it reflects much of the same character qualities that Paul called elders to exhibit back in chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. So, again, this isn't just the, the spiritual leaders in the church have to act this way. No, this is the responsibility of every follower of Jesus Christ. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. How is it that we should live well, as those who are in a corrupt culture, end of chapter 1, and as those who have been transformed by the gospel, end of chapter 2, we conduct ourselves in a way that is counter-cultural, chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. And even as you read through this list, if you say, wow, some of that stuff, man, that's not very politically correct for Paul to say some of that stuff. That's the point. It's counter-cultural. Following Christ means we conduct ourselves in countercultural ways, and when we do that, we not only model within the church what it means to be faithful to Him, we also magnify the wonder of the gospel because we've been transformed. And when people on the outside see that, we then have a platform to tell them about the hope that is in us. 
Let me close with a final illustration. I came across not too long ago the memoirs of a fairly well-known pastor from the early 20th century named Harry Ironside. And Ironside tells a, a, a story, it was something that happened in his own life, of a time when he was attending an evangelistic meeting that was being held on the streets of San Francisco. And there was a crowd gathered, and Ironside got up and preached the gospel. And after he was done preaching the gospel, a man in the crowd handed him a card. And Ironside looked at the card, and he saw the man's name, and he recognized it. This was a man who was actually a socialist. He was an atheist, and he had been traveling up and down the West Coast trying to convince people to become atheists. And on the back of the card, the man had written challenge you to a debate next week that atheism has done more good for the world than Christianity. Well, Ironside, in the moment, surrounded by this crowd, takes the opportunity to respond to the challenge, and he says to the man, after reading the card aloud, yeah, I accept. I'll meet you next week for the debate. I only have one condition. I want you to bring one man and one woman whose lives were distraught. They were down and out. They were in the gutter. And then, because of the message of atheism, they have been brought out of the gutter, and they are now living joyful, fulfilling lives as atheists. One man, one woman. And if you do that, I will bring 100 men and women whose lives were downcast and distraught. They were in the gutter of life, and yet they were raised out of the gutter by the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they will be with me, 100 men and women, next week to hear me debate you on whether atheism has done more for the world than Christianity. The debate never happened. Because <laughs> the atheist knew he was beaten before the debate even started. The wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it transforms us from the inside out. This passage calls us to live consistently with who we are in Christ, and when we do that, we become an attractant for the gospel, and we have a platform of credibility from which to explain the gospel. That was true in Madagascar. That was true on Crete, and it's true in California. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are so grateful for the transforming power of the gospel. We were dead. You made us alive. We were blind, but now we see. We were lost, but we have been found. As those who have been transformed, Father, our request, our prayer is that by your grace and for your glory, we might live in a manner consistent with that gospel, and that as the world around us sees the change in us, that they might be drawn to the truth of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.